Today, Parker Hairtine and Cody Warda interview Dr. Jordan Westling to discuss his recent monograph, Love Divine, published with Oxford University Press. Jordan Westling is Assistant Professor of Religion at Lindsay Wilson College. Some of his work includes being the co-author of The Nature and Promise of Analytic Theology with Brill, as well as the editor of the collection Love, Divine, and Human, Contemporary Essays in Systematic and Philosophical Theology. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. I've been a fan of the Lagos Institute for a while. You guys produce a lot of great stuff, so I'm, I'm really grateful to be with you two and get an opportunity to converse with both of you. It's fantastic to have you. How about we start by you telling us a bit about yourself and why you wrote a monograph on divine love? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor at Lindsay Wilson College, where I teach courses in both theology and philosophy. My research interests are really kind of all over the board, but I suppose I'm most interested in trying to understand the character of the God of the Christian faith. And by character here, I'm, I'm principally referring to God's moral character, or at least that which is often thought to be analogous to God's moral character. So as to why I chose to write a book on God's love, there's a lot to say on, on this score, but I think the heart of it is this. The Christian religion really holds up a tremendously loving God. God exists in a Trinitarian relationship where he enjoys eternal love and yet condescends to take on a kind of lowly human nature and suffer in that human nature for the sake of our redemption. And even beyond just sort of mere redemption, God deifies us in some way by participating in this intertrinitarian life. That seems to me to be a very loving God. In fact, I don't know what God could do for the sake of humanity to better communicate that he takes his love of humans quite seriously. The book, Love Divine, is my attempt to try to understand this God of love a bit better. Okay, that's very helpful background. Getting a little bit into the book, you outline what you call a value account of love. Could you tell us about this? Yeah, so the value account can be unpacked in slightly different ways. So you can understand it is directed towards personal beings or non-personal beings. For ease of expression, let's just focus on love of a personal being, in particular when one personal being loves another personal being. And we can qualify it further if we need to later. So with that sort of stipulation in place, the proponent of the value account says that someone loves another when she responds to the perception of that person's intrinsic worth by valuing her existence, her flourishing, and a kind of union with her. So let me unpack these parts here. First, valuing is understood to be a kind of experiential representation of a state of affairs as good. So that might sound abstract, but it's, it's really not. Suppose you want to land a tenure track job or procure a particular book contract or have that special someone say yes to a date. Right. When you hold these states of affairs before your mind, something inside you says, yes, that's good. I like that. There's an internal affirmation that takes place. That's analogous to valuing on the value account. It's a kind of internal yes or an, uh, an internal affirmation 
of the goodness of the way things are or could be. So that's the valuing that goes on the value account. And then that takes three manifestations in response to a beloved person's value. To review, the proponent of the value account says that love recognizes someone as tremendously valuable and responds with this eternal internal affirmation by valuing their existence, their flourishing, and union with this person. So let's start with valuing someone's existence. The idea here is that you eternally affirm that this person is, that it's wonderful that this being exists. So I remember when my first child, Malcolm, was born, and I found it absolutely flooring. I felt like some goodness had been unleashed into the universe, and I was just lucky to be holding this being. It's absolutely overwhelming. If you have kids, you probably know what I'm talking about. And so I remember just being thankful that this being exists. That's me valuing the existence of my son, Malcolm. Just there's something internal to me that says, yes, this is good, right? So the value account says you respond to someone's worth by valuing that person's existence. The second form of valuing is pretty straightforward. This is valuing someone's flourishing. So when you do this, you experience or perceive someone's flourishing or well-being as good. We're commonly, we're acquainted with this um, in sort of normal discourse and reflection. Finally, we value union with an individual. When we do this, we value knowing this individual, engaging her, and value her engaging you or loving you. To put it simply, we might think of valuing union as a kind of valuing of friendship with the one loved, where friendship here is broadly construed. It could be with a spouse, it could be with a buddy, it could be with a child. Okay, so lots more could be said about the value account. But the claim I make in Love Divine is that God loves us in the manner just described. He loves humans in the manner just described. God responds to the perception of our intrinsic worth by valuing our existence, by valuing our flourishing, and valuing a kind of multifaceted union with us. That's really helpful. In narrowing the framework a little bit as far as what your motivation for framing love and valuing in this way, would it be helpful to state why it's important to say that love responds to an intrinsic value? Or in other words, why you're wanting to avoid the arbitrariness of love? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, right? Um, So the arbitrariness thing is a big deal. So there's this influential theologian, at least influential on this one idea, by the name of Anders Nygren, a Swedish theologian. And he postulates that humans have no value logically prior to God's love. Rather, God loves us, and this is what is said to bestow worth on us. And he further thought, because humans have no worth logically prior to God's love— He claims that there's nothing within humans that could be adduced as motivation for God's love. That's almost a a direct quote from him. But if there's literally nothing within humans that could be adduced to motivate God's love of us, then it seems that God could have taken the love he currently has for us and laid it on lobsters instead. But that just seems to be unfitting. Lobsters are interesting creatures. Yeah. I mean, I watch wild crafts with my kids. They're amazing. But in normal cases, they're not the sort of thing that should be loved as one would love a personal being. They just seem, well, it's just not fitting. It's sort of beneath a certain threshold of of worth. They don't have certain capacities to engage in sort of deep love relationships and so forth. If that appeal to intuition doesn't work for you, here's a different appeal. So for Nigren, when God loves someone, he bestows value on her. So they're, they're sort of intrinsically value less 
and then God loves this person and bestows value on her. Now, let's suppose that one's rights are correlated with one's worth in some significant way. So the higher the value, the greater your raft of rights or the number of, or the weight of your rights, as many people have thought. If so, then if God loves lobsters the way he currently loves us, lobsters would have the rights we currently enjoy since they would have the worth we currently possess. To kill a lobster intentionally in this counterfactual scenario would be as bad as murder because God loves them and you know bestows a kind of worth on them, the kind of worth we currently have, dignity or whatever you might call it. And also in this counterfactual scenario, to kill a human that is not loved by God in the relevant special way would be, it's difficult to say, but it certainly wouldn't be a big deal. It certainly wouldn't be murder. If we have no value apart from God's love and God doesn't love us at all in this counterfactual scenario, then it seems it would be completely morally neutral to just, you know, kill humans at random if they lack this value absent the divine affection. But that just seems to make morality unacceptably contingent or flexible. The murdering of a human seems to be necessarily wrong, not just contingently so, or so many would think, and I certainly think that. Okay, but even let that worry pass, at least somewhat, right? Apart from worries about arbitrariness per se, I don't think it pays God any favors to suppose that God is in the business of creating and loving inherently valueless creatures to the point of becoming one of them and dying for them. In my view, and people might disagree, this does not make God look great. It makes God look irrational. And I think these problems of arbitrariness and divine irrationality are avoided if we postulate the rather commonsensical and traditional idea that God loves humans and other creatures precisely because they possess an inherent intrinsic worth that qualifies them in some way for God's love. Okay. So let me, let me recap that to make sure I understood. So there's a couple problems with saying that humans aren't intrinsically valuable. One of which is if the value is extrinsic, so to speak, it would seem that anything God loves has the same type of value. And so too, would a lobster be as valuable as a human? And then we have these different scenarios of, it seems, just as bad to kill a lobster as it does to kill a human, among other issues. Does that kind of capture some of the problem? Yeah, there, I mean, there there's more than one way to avoid the sort of arbitrariness objection. So I wouldn't say saying that humans have intrinsic value to which God's responding is the only way to elude the problems affiliated with arbitrariness, but it's a good way. And it's a, a way that seems right, right? So here's one, here's one more thing, right? God goes to great lengths to secure the salvation of humans. Plausibly, God is responding to something there that he sees worth dying for, as opposed to just, oh, forget it. They're not particularly valuable in their own right anyway. I can just make a whole bunch of other ones, right? Sure. So the claim is, in you know, my view is the only game in town, but it provides a pretty straightforward way of accounting for, say, the gospel narrative and um, some of these moral problems related with something like Nigren's view. Okay. I agree that the thesis that humans have intrinsic value is a lot more intuitively plausible. How can I square this with 
who was the author you said? Nigan? Nigren. Anders Nigren. How can I square this with Nigren's view in which he argues God gives us everything we have. And so God gives us our value because it seems if there's the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, we didn't pre-exist God in any sense. We are deriving our value from him. So how do we square the thesis that humans do have intrinsic value with the thesis that God gives us our value? Okay. Yeah. Let me see if I can drill down the question a little bit. So is this the concern you have? It seems like intrinsic value is a kind of value that is not derivative. Intrinsic mm-hmm. value is a sort of value that something has apart from some relation, the entity in question bears anything else. Yet, on a plausible scenario, all of creation, any value it has, whether it's a leaf or a human, it derives its value from some sort of relation it bears to God, like some sort of resemblance relation. Is that the idea? That is the idea. Okay, yes. yes. So um, if anyone wants to drill into this a little more, let me recommend two essays here, two writings. One is a book by Mark Murphy, whose work on sort of divine motives, divine action is just amazing. He and I disagree on like everything, but his stuff is really, is really good. Anyway, but he thinks that for the reasons you just sort of referenced, he thinks that creatures don't have intrinsic value and it doesn't make sense to say that creatures have intrinsic value. So in his book, God's Own Ethics, he makes the case at length. And then also in his book, Divine Holiness and Divine Action. I can't give a shorthand, non-complicated response to this right here, but Daniel Rubio is a young philosopher, and I think he's going to be a promising philosopher from the stuff I've read by him. He has a, I think it's a forthcoming essay now, where it's entitled something like, Intrinsically Good, God Created Us. And it's a response to uh, Mark Murphy's challenge. In short, it goes something like this. There are ways of making sense of intrinsic value, good ways, ways that are preferable on a bunch of independent grounds, where the derivation relation isn't the thing that precludes something from having intrinsic value. There is reasons for, again, non-theological considerations, but there are reasons for thinking about isolating a being, even if it has derivative value, and then asking that being sort of conceptually existing on its own, would that being be intrinsically valuable? And Rubio argues persuasively to my mind that yes, there's very good reason to think that that being would be intrinsically valuable. And furthermore, he raises a number of problems for Murphy's critiques of uh, creatures having intrinsic value. So that's sort of the best I can do without really getting to the weeds. Uh, right here. Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, I will leave the audience to reference that further literature um, by Mark Murphy and Daniel. But I mean, feel free to come back if clarification is needed. No, I, I agree. It, it would get pretty much into the weeds and very technical at that point. Daniel Rubio's essay is on my reading list. I think it's in the Oxford Studies and Philosophy of Religion. It's forthcoming there. Uh, and the audience can check that out. In your book, you discuss two standard ways of understanding God's motivation to create. The first you call glorificationism, a bit of a mouthful, and the second one is love. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, can you tell us about the first one? Yeah, yeah, maybe I need to come up with a, a shorter, <laughs> a shorter label. Okay, so gl- glorificationism is a position that God creates and thereby governs for the ultimate purpose of glorifying Himself. Right? Now, God glorifies Himself according to standard versions of glorificationism by appreciating facets of the divine character expressed at extra or expressed outside himself. 
So in this view, when God creates a human, God does so ultimately for self-focused reasons, say to appreciate his handiwork as his handiwork. Like, wow, this is a cool thing that I've made, right? So that's fundamental um, on glorificationism. So you've outlined that, but I know from reading your book, you don't opt for this viewpoint. Uh, What particularly do you find problematic with it? Well, I mean, let me say up front, I do think there's a lot to be said on behalf of glorificationism. And in the quiet repose of my study, sometimes I do think, ah, maybe the view is right. However, I'm still not convinced of it. (laughs) So here are two reasons why I reject the view. One reason is that glorificationism seems to attenuate the doctrine of divine benevolence. So plausibly, in order for an act to be genuinely or at least fully benevolent for you, it must be appropriately focused on you. If I talk about how great you two are, principally so that people will praise me for how kind and generous I am, then I'm not being richly benevolent toward you, right? No, I've got myself primarily in mind. The worry with glorificationism is similar, right? God is fundamentally focused on God's self and all that he does. Sometimes creatures may benefit from what God does to be sure, but God isn't doing what he does primarily to benefit others. So many have worried that this just doesn't constitute a rich enough doctrine of divine benevolence. And in the book, Love Divine, I lay out a number of ways to think about benevolence and self-interest in service of the idea that the glorificationist picture renders God insufficiently benevolent. And I quote a bunch of theologians who independently say things about God's love, and then I say, look, if you hold these widely agreed upon views of the nature of divine benevolence, then you just can't hold to glorificationism. But for me, the more substantial problem is that glorificationism just seems to be incompatible with the self-giving love demonstrated in Christ. The New Testament gives us reason to suppose that God in Christ acted primarily for our benefit. I mean, it even holds up the motives of Christ ubiquitously throughout the New Testament as the sort of motives us humans are to imitate. And it says, look what God does in Christ. He acts for your behalf. Be like Christ, right? And clearly, when Paul or whomever says, be like Christ by, you know, emptying himself for the good of others, he's not promoting anything that would look like a form of egoism. No, it seems to be a very kind of other-centered motivational structure that various New Testament authors are holding up for us as we find those motives represented in Christ. Well, on the supposition that the motives represented in Christ are the divine motives, right? And I think there are good reasons for making that call exegetically and otherwise. Here we have God in Christ acting in richly benevolent ways, ways that are principally focused on the other, on the human or whomever. And for reasons I lay out, the glorificationists just can't say that, or plausibly, the plausible versions of glorificationism with which I contend, they can't say that the culmination or the sort of climax of God's saving acts in Christ are um, richly about humanity. They ought to say that ultimately God does what he does, even in saving us, for his own glory, to express the beauty of the divine character at extra, right? And argue, so they can't 
adequately capture the kind of motivational structure we find displayed in Christ. So I say that counts heavily against glorificationism, and so it ought to be rejected. Out of curiosity, do you think that there would be ethical implications of a counterfactual world where God loves because of glorificationism? Yeah, there might be, right? So um, it depends, right? In this counterfactual scenario, maybe even counterpossible scenario, right? So what would happen is if Christ, if God were to act in ways that I don't mean this pejoratively, but if God were to act in sort of egoistic ways, and I don't mean that pejoratively because God is the center of the universe and if God wants to act egoistically, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Then if there's something about human morality where acting primarily egoistically is just not allowed, it's just precluded by the nature of human morality, then he's not going to hold up God's motives as that which ought to be imitated because there would be this disconnect between divine morality, if you want to call it that, and human morality, or at least motivational structures, right? Or if human morality is not like that, right, it's more flexible. And so there, is a, there are counterfactual scenarios where being fundamentally egoistic for the human would just be A-OK, would be morally permissible, maybe even virtuous. Well, then what you would have is essentially this, New Testament authors saying, be like Christ and do things fundamentally for yourself, that doesn't have to be terrible. I mean, giving to charity is good for the person to whom you give, but it's also good for you. It helps you flourish as an individual, right? So it would, it would change the emphasis in this, in this way of spelling things out, where the fundamental reason why we would do what we do as humans, if we were to imitate the sort of glorificationist Christ, would be ultimately for our own flourishing or for our own goodness. Where it seems to me that flourishing is very significant for ethics in the New Testament, but it's one that is an ethic of love, where you're willing to genuinely give for the other, and your flourishing is parasitic on giving to the other. It's not the primary focus of what, you're, what you ought to be doing. At least that's how I read the New Testament. Could this yield a worry then that love becomes such that it is sort of masochistic? Yeah. Yes. No, I, I do think it, it uh, can spark that worrying it has, right? So one of the feminist critiques of, you know, from certain feminists of certain kinds of Christian moral theory is that it can really make people a doormat, right? Now, the reason that that critique has legs is because Christ really does seem to set aside his own rights and give for the other, right? And so I, I agree with that worry, right? It is something that those of us engaged in the project of thinking about sort of Christian ethics, we need to confront that, right? And I don't have sort of a silver bullet answer, but what I want to say is you look at something like, you know, Christ's two great commands, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. There's still a loving of yourself that is there, right? So you ought to respect yourself as well as the other, and I think when someone just becomes a full-on doormat, they're forgetting about the sort of love, love yourself bit, and they're just completely bending to the will of the other. And I want to say, that's not loving to yourself, but it's also not loving to the other, right? If you have a spouse that is physically abusive, for example, and all you do is just completely cave and don't you know, get some sort of intervention or something like that, that is not good for the abuser. That is, you know, helping. And I, I don't want to 
victim shame here, but it's, it is allowing the person who is being cruel to continue in their cruelness, right? So there has to be a time when love for the other means that you're willing to sort of aggressively assert your own rights. And again, love of yourself would dictate the same. So again, these are sort of a tangled web of issues and how you balance all these things, which is part of what makes ethics so complicated. But to your point, I do think the sort of self-giving love in Christ, the reason the worry arises is because, well, Christ really does seem to give in a robust way and calls his followers to give in a robust way. And so our challenge is then to think about how we can exemplify that or work towards that in our own lives without becoming full-on doormats or forgetting about our rights and the rights of our loved ones. That's extremely helpful. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that from the perspective of glorificationism, we would love others because it would somehow ultimately glorify ourselves, or that is at least what God would do and we would in turn probably emulate that or something along those lines. But from the other perspective, which we'll get into in just a moment, we might love others not just because, not just in spite of it being a selfless thing, but also we would recognize that the love for ourselves is a form of loving others as well. Yeah. So those almost go in two opposite directions, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's, there's at least some sort of interconnection, right? I mean, so in when I love my neighbor as myself, right, or I just love others, that does contribute to my flourishing, I mean, there's a backstory to be told here, but for me, the backstory goes something like this. The divine persons of the Trinity give freely to one another, and they have the joy of giving freely to one another. And we're called into this divine community where we, and the way we get there through this broken world now is by learning how to just, in some sense, forget about ourselves and give to the other, right? Within certain parameters anyway. And eventually we're going to be caught up into this divine life fully, or at least to a much more robust degree than we currently experience and experience the joy of a sort of free love where you give and receive without undue ego and things of that nature. So if that's the kind of end goal, then as I learn to freely love others and set aside my own rights, at least in certain circumstances, well, then I'm habituating myself to my eternal home. And that's incredibly good for me, right? But again, let me just also stress that there does become a time when I need to worry about my own rights, both for my own sake, because I am a valuable creature, right? But then also for the good of the person who is harming me in some sort. I just can't allow them to continue in this way, at least if it's my responsibility in, in such a scenario to do what I can to, I don't know, decrease their harm of another. Thanks again for joining us on the Lagos Institute podcast, based at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, and of course, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find out more about the Lagos Institute by visiting our website, found in the description. Thank you.